don't know if they call it May Day. It's interesting, though. I'm calling a little bit of a May Day here. It is Monday, the 1st of May, 1 p.m. on the East Coast, the only time zone, in my opinion, that matters. Welcome to a new month. Guy Adami here. That's Dan Nathan wearing his best Johnny Cash outfit yet again. I love it, the man in black. This is Market Call. Uh, today's Market Call, Dan, brought to you by FactSet. Financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. There also are a data provider. A few things before we get started here. I don't want to bury the lead. That is spelled L-E-D-E, I believe, as opposed to L-E-A-D. Uh, game seven tonight. Now, by virtue of the fact that the Edmonton Oilers uh, dispatched the L.A. Kings and there's only one hockey game tonight, the Rangers will be starting at 8 p.m. on the East Coast. Now, if there had been a game seven uh, Edmonton L.A., uh, that game would have meant the Rangers started an hour earlier. Not that anybody cares. I only mention that, Dan, because mm-hmm. you and I will be in an event this evening and of right. all places, Brooklyn, New York, which I rarely get out to. You do. I think you're appreciating that extra hour because I think you feel like you're going to get the third period of this game probably on the way home or something like that. This is really kind of the. All right. So, guy, what do you think? Are they going to win? That is my hope. I mean, listen, a couple of those game seven games yesterday were out of control. Um, Is this one going down to the wire? How can you not be a fan of sports, specifically hockey, when you see a Florida Panther team, which was up to zip in the game? Went down 3-2 in Boston, had every reason to lose. Scores with the open net with a minute left and then wins it in overtime. Good for the Panthers. And then, listen, Colorado, the defending Stanley Cup champions going down to the expansion Seattle Kraken at home as well. I mean, that's why hockey is so amazing. But I got to tell you something. I won't won't get into the vernacular of what I'm feeling right now for this Game 7. I'm... I have a number of things going through permeating my body, uh, but I'm I'm eagerly awaiting. But I am on pins as needles as I am, Dan, for the market. Which you know there used to be a saying when the market used to go up every day. Somebody would ask me why is the market up, and I would say because it's open. And we've reached that point in the cycle where it really yeah. doesn't matter what the hell's going on. The market seems to want to go higher, but there are warning signs that continue to flash red. Market's not adhering to any of them. They are not adhering to it. Listen, if you waited through those two minutes of guy. Sorry, uh, sorry, but I want to I want to promise everybody we got a couple trade ideas here, a couple actionable things that that we think are kind of interesting, kind of contrarian setups here. Um, You know, listen, to walk in this morning, I think we all figured that something had to happen with this first Republic Bank. If you look at the major money centers, you know, look at JP Morgan, which is buying their assets and their deposits. It's up two and a half percent. It's interesting, though, that it's coming off of its highs. Some of the other money center banks are coming off of its highs. Jamie Dimon's commentary um, earlier this morning when we were taping on the tape, you mentioned Gary Cohn, the former president of uh, Goldman Sachs had some comments um, about this. I think Jamie Dimon's probably most important. He thinks that we're ending this phase of the regional banking crisis, which is probably what he said when he bought St- uh, Bear Stearns mm-hmm. in March of 2008. I think he's probably learned a whole heck of a lot since then. So we're going to give Jamie the benefit um, of the doubt here. But guy, we've been talking a little bit about what are the, some of the knock-on effects, right? What are the effects of if all these regional banks are going to basically like be under the umbrella 
ultimately of the major money center banks. One of the reasons that a first Republic bank was able to do what they were able to do. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who lives up in Connecticut. Okay. He could bank anywhere he wants. He's got lots of assets that, that would be great deposits, right. For any big bank. But he went with first Republic a few years ago when mortgage rates were really low mm -hmm. and they undercut every major money center bank. All he had to do was leave a couple sticks in deposits, right. In their in their uh, savings or you know checking capacity or whatever, and so it's interesting because last week he told me that he moved a bunch of those deposits. Okay, in the height of this whole thing, but he left his mortgage obviously with First Republic because it's at a three percent or something like that. Mortgage rates are much higher. He could not have gotten the rate that he got from a J.P. Morgan or Bank America or a Wells. And that's a really interesting setup. So that part of the market is leaving. It's gone, right. right? So like, talk to me a little bit about some of these regionals, some of these ones that were servicing, obviously Silicon Valley Bank was servicing, um, you know, private companies, their founders, VCs, their founders, all that sort of stuff. And then you had banks like Signature and First Republic, uh, you know, servicing some of the wealthy people. But most importantly, undercutting what a lot of these other banks could do for other services. They were, they were providing um, a service in a, for a vast majority of the population, if you think about it, where J.P. Morgan doesn't necessarily need to play in those arenas. These other banks sort of filled the void. And, you know, it's important to say, and, and we've never said otherwise, but there was nothing nefarious going on with any of these places. Yeah, they were clearly mismanaged and they obviously didn't understand some of the risks associated with the positions they had. And as interest rates moved quickly, I think the ground shifted under their feet without them acknowledging it, but that's neither here nor there. That's just bad management. But what's going to happen to your point? Yeah. They're going to be fewer and fewer banks because if, if you think about it, and I'm sure people watching this or listening to this right now are saying to themselves, why should I risk being in a bank that pot potentially could um, fall victim to this when I could be at one of the huge money centers, whether it's Citibank, I guess you throw Wells Fargo in there, Bank of America to a certain extent, clearly JP Morgan, and not have to theoretically worry about it. And I think that's what you're seeing. I mean, we already saw deposits flee a lot of these banks and go to the JP Morgans if you just listen to the earnings report. So that was taking place all along. Of course, the problem is in an environment where you know we really want, don't want anybody to be too big to fail, this situation has created exactly that. But more importantly, again, my opinion is the vital role that small and mid-sized banks play to our economy, which again is 73% driven by the consumer, which by and large uh, employs the majority of the workers in this country. And if those banks you know, are, I don't know what the word is, it's compromised for lack of a better word, or just not able to compete, you have to wonder what the knock-on effect is to the broader economy. Now, again, it's not happening tomorrow, but those wheels are in motion. On top of, of course, Dan, you know, a Federal Reserve that's going to have, by the end of this week, have hiked 500 basis points in the course of a year, and the lag effect of that hasn't been felt either. So there are a lot of things going on, and as Doug Cass texted me before, <clears throat> and we were going to bring this up, I mean, again, you're seeing crazy moves in the bond market. Look at the TLT. We'll look at a chart in a minute, I'm sure. But again, huge move in interest rates. Uh, on you know bec Why? Because I guess the bond market's open as well. So, so many things to be concerned about. Yet here we are with an S&P that just sort of does the grind higher each and every day.
Yeah, to your point, I mean, the two-year U.S. Treasury yield up 12 uh, basis points and the 10-year up about 13. And that move index, though, oddly, is just stuck here at 122. Um, Guy, I want to talk about just what we're seeing with the banks today. Um, When you think about, and we've been highlighting this, I mean, the lack of um, the regional banking index, the KBW, um, you know, this KRE index, it's just kind of stuck here, right? So it's down, you know, 30-some percent in two months. It can't get out of its own way. You'd think on a day like today when you have at least one bank that is not failing, at least their deposits are not, you know, they're backstopped by the FDIC. And that's what they told us when they went in to save some of these banks um, in March. Just look how badly that acts. You know, even the um, the ETF, uh, you know, the XLF doesn't act particularly well, which brings me back to a name that for some reason, uh, this is Charles Schwab, right? And, and this one, you know, was kind of at the eye of the storm because it does have a big bank. It also, so it's got deposits that only are um, you know, insured up to $250,000, but then they also have lots of brokerage accounts, right? And so there was concern there that if deposit flight was leaving to get higher interest rates or they were worried about a run on the bank, that this one could be in trouble. The company has come out on numerous occasions over the last month and tried to assuage the fears of investors on their earnings call. They made the point uh, a couple of weeks ago that they're in good shape here. But guy, this stock does not get out of its own way. And if you see this, this is just the year-to-date chart. You see the kind of precipitous drop that we had in March. It kind of recovered here. It traded 56 after its earnings two weeks ago, but it's sitting right on this uptrend here. And the other one I think is really interesting is this five-year chart. It just shows just how precarious these levels are. And when I look at a day like today and the news that we have, and a stock like this was one of the first in all of the banks and all the financials that I see to go down on the day, I think you got to pay attention. So just Thoughts on the price action with Schwab, because they're saying one thing and a lot of, I mean, there was a couple downgrades after their earnings reports, that sort of thing. But to me, I just think that there's something when there's smoke, there's fire. So I got a shorter term chart because I think you bring up a great point. We obviously, I think, troughed what around 45 and change a few weeks ago. I think on that day, Sarah Eisen interviewed the CEO of Schwab and he mentioned that he bought, I want to say 50,000 shares or something, whatever it was, doesn't matter that seemed to sort of ease the fears of the market. And the stock did bounce, I think, close to 60. But since that time and since their earnings release, it really hasn't done a whole hell of a lot on a broader market that's obviously done well. And in a broader market where some of these banks have actually done extraordinarily well in the wake of what we've just been talking about it. So it's clearly telling a story. Now, if you put up a little longer term chart, you can see, I mean, we're at some pretty critical levels here. This is sort of where we topped out in in the middle of 2020-ish. So past resistance becomes support. We're at that support level. But again, one has to wonder what's going on there in the internals and have they weathered the storm? I think they've weathered part of the storm, but they're probably in the eye of it, as are a lot of participants right now. And again, it's not just Schwab. And you're going to outline a trade, I think, in a second. But, you know, look at the insurance companies that have not traded particularly well. As I mentioned, I think last week, there was a Wall Street article, a Wall Street Journal article pointing out. Uh, the the heavy debt load that a lot of these places were carrying, not least of which pension funds and mutual funds that are probably going to come home to roost at some point. So, you know, a lot of comments are, you know, you guys are still bearish law, which I just think is, you know, the law stuff is for if you're eight years old, fantastic. Otherwise, you got to stop. Or what will change your opinion? And it's interesting, you know, I think that is the right question. What will change your opinion from bearish to bullish? And I will tell you, first of all, it's going to be time because we have to weather a lot more, I think. And the second is going to be, you know, when do we get towards reasonable valuations 
in this environment? When do we finally see the lag effect of, again, 500 basis points of hikes over a year period of time that I don't think the market has felt yet at all? So, yeah, price is obviously uh, a bit of a problem if you're bearish. I mean, the market continues to go up in the face of bears every single day. And people say, you know, we're at the phase where I'm right, the market's wrong. No, I'm not suggesting that. I get what's going on. Cash flows and, and money flows continue to find their way into the equity market. And maybe the U.S. equity market is some global flight to quality. But I got to tell you something. People are paying up in a meaningful way in an environment, in my opinion, where they shouldn't be. Yeah, so let's look at the Schwab here because this one is interesting to me again. I mean, I think the price action going down in the day is interesting. I also think that some of the comparisons that you might make to why people would keep their deposits um, at a Schwab relative to some of these other banks that we just talked about because of the services that they were undercutting some of their larger competitors is kind of interesting to me. The price action suggests that there's something else going on here. And when I look at the options market, this is kind of interesting to me, right? So I wouldn't short Schwab if I was bearish on it. You never know what sort of tape bomb is going to come out and where that stock could go. Maybe it's Warren Buffett comes in and takes a stake and puts the puts an end to this sort of thing. And you're going to be short this stock at 52 bucks and you're going to be pulling out of your ass at $58. Okay. So to me, what I like to do is kind of look and see what is the options market pricing for a name like this. And here's a chart right here of the 50 or the 30 day at the money implied volatility. That's the blue line versus the green line is the uh, historical vault. That's how much it's been moving. When I see this thing come in, as much as it has for implied that tells me that at least some investors or at least options traders or market makers think that some of the worst is behind it here. Now, the historical vol is going to come in. You see this stock has been kind of banging around in this kind of low 50s sort of level, but implied vol looks kind of attractive to me if I want to make a directional sort of play in the name. And I do right here. So today when Schwab is trading about 52, I wanted to find my risk. I want to look lower. I want to kind of target July expiration that's going to cover um, their Q2 earnings report. So today at 52, I could buy the July 50, 37 and a half put spread for about $2 and a quarter. I'm buying one of the July 50 puts at about 275. I'm selling one of the way downside 37 and a half puts at 50 cents. That costs me two and a quarter. I'm risking a little less than 5% of of the stock price here, um, I have potential gains of just, let's just round this up, $10 between 47 and a half and 37 and a half with the max gain of 10 below 37 and a half. And I've lost up to two and a quarter between 47.75 and 50 with a max loss above that. I just like the break even here. It's down about 7%. I have a max potential gain of 10% of the stock price. If it's down about 28%, I'm going to catch Q2 earnings here. And so when I just think of the technical setup, I look at where the volume is pricing this sort of situation and I look at the price action of the stock and then I say to myself I think we're probably in the second or third inning of whatever little crisis that we have going on here again I don't think this is going to be like the summer into the fall of 2008 but I do think and you could take Jamie Dimon's word that maybe these regional banks, maybe they are basically backstopped, but some of these larger financial institutions might have different issues as they deal with this kind of held maturity and the losses on their books that are relative to it. And Jamie Dime is not going to be there for Schwab. So the structure of the trade. So here's where I'm going to ask you a question that I know you're equipped to answer. You obviously putting this trade on exactly this, but you could leg into this as well. And this is what I'm going to ask and just sort of bear with me for a second. If you think you're going to be right over time and you could just leg into the first part by buying that put given the vols come your way 
And if things start to work your way, vol by definition should start to increase. So there's a chance that that 37 and a half put you're selling for 50 cents, you could actually sell for maybe twice that. Is that something that you take into consideration or am I off base here? No, 100%. It's a great question too. And so again, you know, one, one of the reasons why, you know, I've been doing these trade ideas. I did them on CNBC's Options Action for 10 years. Um, we talk about options trading um, on fast money a lot. And obviously, you know, you and I talk about a lot of trade ideas here on Market Call. What I'm trying to do, especially for people that maybe have less experience but are really interested in trying to figure out how to use options to define their risk and 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 to kind of do the sorts of things that we talk about because a lot of investors a lot of retail investors should not be shorting stocks etfs it's it, you know it can be a very difficult way to trade especially if your whole career or your whole experience in investing is buying things okay but the flip side of that is learning about the options market and the sort of ability to define your risk is also really important. That being said, most people trade options really poorly. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why I like spreads is that I kind of, you know, I'm slightly increasing the odds that I will have a trade that's in the money. And the more trades that you can have in the money is the more optionality, to use the pun here, that I'm going to have. And the last thing you want to do is let long premium directional trades go to zero, basically become worthless. And so how do I manage trades like this? So I'm paying two and a quarter. Let's just say Schwab starts moving higher or like just go sideways for the next two months. And this trade is going to start to decay, right? Well, the offset of the decay of that way out of the money put is going to help me out a little bit. That's really important. Okay. The other point I would make about this trade idea is like, if this is worth like a dollar, a dollar 20, I'm going to look to cut my losses. Cause that means the probability of success is going to just decrease here. So I have simple rules guy, like some, basically some mental stops of how I like to do this. And a lot of trades, I do like to enter with spreads, especially if vols high, but your question's a perfect one. I could have bought just the 50 put. If it started to go my way and was in the money, then I could look to sell a downside put and I'd be getting more for it. So um, you can trade in both ways, but I like to enter usually with spreads, especially when vol is high. Yeah, it's really just comes, it's a stylistic thing without question. Yeah. And obviously if you were to do it potentially the way that I suggested to your point, I mean, you could give up that 50 cents of premium that you're earning to basically, you know, mitigate some of the cost of the original put that you're buying. I, I totally get it. But, you know, those are the questions when you're trading these things, you have to ask yourself. Right. And again, you know, we're not looking to confuse people. They're just different ways to do this. But I do like this structure. And regardless of what you think about Schwab, I mean, there's no getting around the fact that since that bounce from 45 to 60, the ensuing two and a half or three weeks, the stock has not traded particularly well. And we saw similar uh, with some of these other banks when not trading particularly well on a good tape was sort of the precursor yeah. To something else so we'll see if it plays out that way dan yeah so let, let, let's go back to that question you had about how how you guys would kind of change your mind if you're wrong and so to me i think the jury's still out here just because the stock market is going up it doesn't mean that we're 100 percent wrong you're wrong on price right now but the reasons why i'm bearish i could just feel like like what i see in the markets doesn't make me feel less bearish i'm just gonna say that okay and then here's a tweet from tom lee um at fact set um fs insight and tom is is a friend i have a lot of respect for tom and is if you guys think that you know we have one pitch or me in particular that um i'm a perma bear you know tom i think it's been known and this is not a criticism is pretty much a perma bull and every time the market goes down for a sustained period of time he's trying to find reasons to justify why it should go higher 
Today, he tweets out about this first Republican. Then he quote tweets with Jamie Dimon saying, that's fine. And Tom's been right this year. He was wrong last year. I was right last year. I'm wrong this year. And it just depends what sort of market we're going to be in. I don't think the bear market is over, Guy, which leads me to a chart. And I think this is really interesting because you and Amanda, we were talking about this earlier today. We were talking about things that we wanted to talk about. Here's a chart of the S&P 500 from its March 2000 highs, okay, to its October 2002 lows, okay? Mm -hmm. It got cut in half. It was down about, I think, 58% or so. And we're not even going to look at this 2000 because a lot of the damage was done in the NASDAQ. We know the NASDAQ sold off 80%. But I want to highlight these two 20-plus uh, percent rallies in 2001, and I want to highlight these two 24% rallies in 2002, okay? And almost in early 2003, the S&P almost went back and made a new low. I am fairly well convinced about everything I see, and I'm going to make one other point, okay, that we are still in a bear market. And what we're seeing right now in the S&P 500 is one of these rallies. One of the main differences is back in 02 and back in 01, the Fed could not ease policy fast enough. And it was the same thing in 08 into 09, and that kept on going. Well, what is the Fed about to do this week? They are about to raise interest rates, Fed funds, to 5%, okay? That's the big difference. That's why I'm not changing my tune. You talk about the lag effect guy all the time as far as the tightening cycle and the end of QE and the like. And when you add into the tightening that has occurred with what's going on in the banking industry, I think there's going to be a retest in the S&P 500. So I just like, again, thoughts on that guy. And then I want to I show you guys um, some work from a friend of mine who I think is kind of interesting. And Carter actually has a similar chart to in the S&P 500. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to go back that long, but I do obviously remember what was transpiring. And those rallies were violent rallies to the upside. You know, and I, you can, you people were making very cogent arguments for being bearish at that time. And then you'd have these in-your-face rallies that made you really question your thesis. And to your point, you saw it no less than four times over the course of that period of time. But you see what the broader market did over the extended length of time. Uh, it just had you really questioning, how can I be wrong? And I think it's a fair question to ask us. You know, How can you be wrong? What will change your mind? Uh, again, for me, it's just the market coming to grips with the reality of the situation. And valuations do matter. Earnings obviously do matter. The earnings have been better than expected, but still decelerating. It's just, I guess it comes down to what lens are you looking through? And some of these bigger names, we did an entire podcast on, you know, basically the market being carried, we called it carry that weight by seven different names. I mean, that's somewhat troubling. And again, I mentioned Doug Cass earlier, I'll mention him again. He's pointed out on Twitter and in some of his writings that the market breadth has been in a word miserable. That doesn't mean the market can't continue to go higher. But at a certain point, that's going to matter as well. Listen, we're going to hear from Apple this week. I have no idea what they're going to say clearly. I think the Federal Reserve is important. But why you have to ask yourself yet again, I think a lot of this rally has been built upon this notion that the Fed's going to be cutting in the back half of 2023. We're in May right now. So the back half of 2023 is fast approaching. The unemployment rate in this country is three and a half percent. Yeah, the economy's not great, but it's not falling off the proverbial cliff. Why would they be cutting? I mean, what for what potential reason is there to cut other than something catastrophic going on? So we'll see. And if something catastrophic is going on to make them cut, stands the reason the market's probably going to be feeling that pain. So I get it. Uh, you know, it's great to be bullish. It's great when you're long stocks and they go higher. 
just understand, and it doesn't matter the reasons why. If you're long something goes up, you're making money. But don't confuse that with everything's fine under the surface and this market's going to move in perpetuity to the upside. Yeah, no, and that, and so we showed you just kind of what, what happened in 01 and 02, and I think that's interesting. And if you look at just what's happened over the last, let's call it uh, six months or so, I mean, you see a very clear pattern. A friend of mine, Jorge, over at GFR. Jorge, by the way, and I'm sure he's great. He was the son in one of the Meet the Fokker movies. I believe the son was Jorge, if you recall. Sorry, Dan, I just- no, I, 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 I guess that I do. But when you look at this pattern here, and, and again, so if we were to take out that February 2 high in the S&P 500, that's 4,200, and we make a slight new high, I mean, when you look at that, okay, that would be a series of higher highs. It would also be a series of lower um, or of higher lows. And, 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 and I get it. It's, it's constructive. We've been talking about how the S&P looks constructive. But if everything that we've just learned here, okay, as far as earnings that are a little better than expected, despite them coming in, we have the S&P, we track Butter's work um, over there at FactSet Earnings Insight pretty clearly here. I mean, we know the multiple of the S&P at current levels is trading very near the five and 10 year average. Does that make sense when you have Fed funds and you have inflation as high as they are relative to those five and 10 year averages? No, it doesn't. So to me, I'm not changing my tune, my tune yet. I look at Jorge's work. Um, Carter has shown this chart to us. I think that if you want to get constructive, wait for 400 points in the S&P 500. Obviously, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Then we're looking at those August highs again here. But that's how I'm thinking about the S&P 500. We're all kind of throwing the towel. The last point that Doug makes about breadth. Look at NVIDIA today. NVIDIA just crossed $700 billion in market cap. It's trading at a new 52-week high today. It's up 4%. They cannot get into this stock fast enough. It's trading 23 and a half times sales. Mm -hmm. 23 and a half times sales. I'm just going to say that again. It's a $700 billion market cap company. This is an absolute mania. That's a good-looking chart, people. I'm shorted. I'm getting hurt. Maybe that's why I sound so fired up right now. I think we're getting very near um, the end of this whole trade here. Okay, guy, here's let, let's move to something that you have been very constructive on, and you've been talking about energy. You've been talking about energy stocks, uh, and you've been talking about the most important point I'd make, why you've liked the equities, is the relative performance to the commodity, and you've been mentioning that. You thought that you'd see Exxon make a new high. It did. But here's the thing. On Friday, after its earnings guy, it ticked at a new all-time high. Did not close at a new all-time high. And it's followed through to the downside, I think, today, which is kind of interesting. It's down 3% or so. And so yeah. I'm just curious to give me a sense for what that is. Is it just kind of investors ringing the register? Because the commodity, let's look at crude at 75 bucks here. It's filled in that OPEC gap. Is it basically saying as good as it gets? I think that's part of it, uh, without question. I look at WTI has been in this range, and I, I thought that last move through 80 was going to break the average, and we were going to get through it. That was wrong. So we've been sideways effectively since December. So we know what the commodity has done. But if we can pull up uh, quickly an Exxon chart, and I think that we're going to have a trade here as well. I mean, yeah, to your point, it stalled out. And if we could pull up a Chevron chart, which is even more important, and I'm sorry to do this, Jacob, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this thing, Remember when Chevron announced a $75 billion stock repurchase um, and that stock top ticked. And that was around, I think it might have been the day of earnings, if I'm not mistaken. Biden administration was apoplectic. I get it. I understand all the optics around that. But that proved to be the top of the stock. Now, could be that we're seeing a very similar situation going on here in Exxon. So I think you're right to bring it up, Dan. 
Yeah, so here's the trade. And again, I want to start with the implied volatility um, on the options market with Exxon. And this is one of the reasons why it leads me to do a trade using options. If you see that the blue line is the 30-day at the money implied volatility, that is the price of options. The green line is the historical vol, how much it's been moving. And you see that Exxon vol, when it was at all-time highs, is was trading at lows. And you see that relationship a lot between options, premiums, and the way the stock um, is trading in the underlying. But that leads me to think, okay, I want to use options to define my risk. I want to be contrarian here, but on a day like today, down 3%, when I started writing this up, the stock was down one and a half percent, but here's the trade. And I'm probably going to wait a little while until this thing maybe gets a little bit of a pop or so, maybe like a buck or so. I want to look down and I want to look at filling in that gap that we just saw from the OPEC, possibly all the way down to the uptrend that gets you down towards $100, the 200-day moving average, just a little um, uh, above that here. But today when Exxon was trading at 115, I could buy the June expiration 115, 100 put spread, paying about $3.50 for that, buying one June 115 put for about 415, selling one June 100 put about 65 cents, have profits up to 11 and a half dollars between 111 and a half and 100 with a max gain of 11 and a half um, below 100. I've lost it up to 350 uh, between 111 and a half and 115 with a max loss of 350 above 115. This trade idea is risking about 3% of the stock price as a break even down about 3% and a max potential gain of about 10% if the stock is down 13% by June expiration. So that's about six or seven weeks from now. And again, I'll use a mental stop about 50% of the premium that I spent. I'm targeting a gap fill from last month, and then a move back towards that 200-day and possibly that very well-defined uptrend here. And again, this is not something a high-conviction trade. The options market, I think, is giving me an opportunity to define my risk. I'm basically going to risk 1% to 2% to play for a 10% move over the next six or seven weeks. I like that risk-reward here. I just don't see anything, especially given what we're hearing about China or the disappointment of some of the growth numbers out of China and what we might be headed to this month or this quarter as it relates to Earn, or some of these energy names having a lesser contribution to S&P earnings and possible slower economy. I like focusing on a name like Exxon. I think the fundamental reasons are right. And if we could go back to an Exxon chart real quick, you know, although the stock did make an all-time high last week on the back of that earnings release, you know, you've seen moves to the downside along the way. I mean, you can look at this chart the way I'm looking at it. And although we've been in a very well-defined uptrend, again, your eyes will take you to different points along the curve. Go back to the June move. From June into July, when I think the stock traded from about 108 down to about 80 bucks, you saw it again in September when I think it was 100. I think it got down to about 85 or so. So you've seen moves of this magnitude along the way. And to your point, the fact that we basically traded up to the levels we saw in February and for now at least seemingly stalled at, it stands to reason, A, you're going to fill that gap. And maybe you're going to trade down to that uptrend line, which puts you right in there not only the 200-day moving average, but the trend line and the parameters that you set. So it makes a lot of sense. You could still, by the way, you could be bullish in ExxonMobil for the next six months and still enter this trade because it makes a lot of sense given the timeline one and given the constraints of the trade. And, and probably number three, now I'm reading and hearing that a lot of people are basically abandoning their energy exposures and getting into technology. And I tell you, I can understand why people would be sort of throwing the towel and say, okay, that's it. I got to be in tech because that's where the beta is. But, you know, I think that's I think that's really late to the dance type of stuff. Yeah. No. And, and again, I think you make a great point here, though, with a, with a stock like this that you've been bullish on 
for a better part, I don't know, for a year or so, it's given you opportunities to buy that, right? And so like, that's why, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in market call um, on the technicals. So um, appreciate all of that color there, Guy. All right, a couple other areas. Um, this one is really interesting. You mentioned this, and this is the name that I, I feel like, and the home builders in general, um, you've been kind of pounding the table on. This is Pulte Home. Mm. This thing, this thing looks like it's an AI stock. Did they are they applying AI to home building? <laughs> what are they? What are they? What are they doing here, guy? Because this thing, it looks like it's just uh, off to the races. Yeah. Now, I just want to make one point, and you know, we highlight a, a stock like this when it broke out above that February high. Okay, you're likely to get a follow through, and this is Carter Braxton Worth kind of territory, but. You know, highlighting it here does not suggest because it's doing so well that you want to jump in and, and ride this train at this point. You look at this move where it's gone from, you know, the, the the mid to low 30s, you know, to where it is right now. And you say, OK, a check back possibly towards that $60 level would be probably a healthy thing for the stock. Yeah. And the reason why we wanted to highlight this again, not to get people to so pile into Pulte Homes at an all time high, given the move it's already had, just to illustrate that. You know, a couple things. We we have been bullish on things along the way. This is one of the names that we've actually highlighted a number of times. And it's somewhat counterintuitive, and it probably would fly in the face of everything we've said over the last six months or so. But what to me, what stood out with the supply-demand imbalances and the fundamentals around the stock, which, again, to use the term, extraordinarily counterintuitive when you think about a slowing economy, rising rates, oh, my God, the home builder's going to get throttled. And it happened for a short period of time until people realized that, wait a second, there's still a demand imbalance here. And I think that's what you're seeing in the stock. What I will say, and we've seen this a number of times, you will get a check back without question. I don't know what it's going to be on the back of. I'm not smart enough to say. But you know, when you get to a few standard deviations away from the 200-day moving average, things tend to, you know, it's elastic to a point. And then things start to snap back. So the first snapback is going to be in the form of the trend line around 60. And then we're going to start having a conversation, I think, as the year progresses, the back half of this year, the stock that you know had a great run in the first half of 2023 and for whatever reason started to give it back. So that's what we're setting up for. I just wanted to sort of highlight that to show that there are stocks that sort of defy, not only technology stocks, but there are yeah. stocks that defy logic in this current environment. Okay, and I want to talk about one other sector here. Because it's about China, actually, and, and I think it's interesting. So maybe if Stephen can start making a wind chart, um, W-Y-N-N, going back to the start of 2017, and I'd love you to draw um, a downtrend line from those highs, and those highs were uh, $200. And, and if you look at it, it's going to set up really interesting. In the meantime, let's set up the one year, because we just talked about how maybe some of the industrial Data out of China is not particularly great, and and just and maybe that's one of the reasons for the weakness as it relates to the reopening trade and commodities like crude. But the consumer trade is alive and well. Yeah. And you know we we talked I think two weeks ago about LVMH, and they specifically called out the China consumer, the high end consumer here. And I think that maps kind of closely to Wind Resorts. And you've been talking about this name for a while. And this stock has gone parabolic since late last year. And this one again, it's holding that uptrend. It's well above its 200-day moving average. And so I'm just curious, this looks very different than Pulte Guy because it spent the last couple months really consolidating. And now it feels like it wants to break out. And then we'll pull up that chart going back to 2017 when they have it, because I think it's really interesting too. Yeah. The longer term chart, I think will illustrate where we are. And that's important. So Pulte Homes, as I mentioned, is making an all-time high. Wind is nowhere close to it, but you've had obviously a pretty heroic move 
over the last almost now year in the stock, probably highlighted, I think it was in October, maybe November of last year, when Tillman Fertitta announced that he was taking a stake in the company. I think I think the shares have doubled since then, maybe a little bit less than that, but you get my drift. With that said, you know, the point all along in win is they had some real tailwinds working for them and valuation was coming into play as well. But not, you know, again, this is going to at some point run out of steam. And if you go back to that prior chart quickly, this is the level where you might be saying, all right, it might be time to start to take some money off the table. So when you see a Macau headline, you know, typically bull runs end for individual stocks at the height of good news. And this is some pretty damn good news. So here we are at a downtrend line or seemingly through it. But you have to ask yourself, is this a breakout or is this a false breakout? And we're going to start doing the check back. Well, well it's funny. And and so, Guy, that was that was that was kind of interesting that you just did that, because the way the chart was drawn before, you know, from that high going back to like 2019, it was just at that trend line. And that's why these like these different charts with different time frames, they can say different things, right? The one-year chart is basically showing a really nice uptrend, showing that consolidation and showing the potential for a breakout. Now, if we look at this one going back to 2017, this is pretty powerful, right? So you see those series of, of lower highs here. We had that big move above its 200-day moving average, and it's consolidating. If you go back a year or two, it looks like the same sort of pattern, and it did fail. So this is where I want to marry, I guess, the fundamentals, the macro, right, and some of the technicals here. And so this one, as long as it can hold that downtrend that's been in place since 2017, you probably try to trade this thing to the upside. But any bad China data or macro data or any data as it relates to, you know, only Chinese are going to Macau, that sort of thing. Those are the sorts of data points that you'd want to keep up if you're in a trade like this. So again, um, you've been right on this one guy. I'm assuming that you're going to help let the technicals also guide you a little bit. No, you have to. And again, you have to just make the answer. You have to decide, is this a false breakout or is it sort of doing a sideways action before the next leg higher? I'm not, you know, I want to be clear. I'm not ready to say it's over and win. I'm just saying this is the type of setup you're looking for if in fact you're looking for a time to start to take profits, there might be that one last uh, gasp to the upside. And I'll tell you something, at a certain point, I think you're going to be reading headlines about Tillman Fertitta sort of exiting or taking profits in some in this name, almost by definition, because it's the right, just, just in terms of um, proper mechanics, it's the right thing to do. Before we get out of here, Dan, Jim's asking a question that you're quite qualified to ask. Dan, are you adding to your NVIDIA puts? And if so, would you move the strike date further out? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, this one kind of got away from me here, people. And I think I put this trade on when the stock was about 263. And if you could do the math there to 263, 264 to 288, um, you know, it's up 4% today. I'm out about 10%. Okay. So here's the deal. Um, I am going to roll some of these down a bit, the puts. Okay. And if I'm trading the NVDS, which I also am. I'm going to roll some of the calls. That's the inverse um, down also. So I'm rolling the puts up, excuse me, and I'm rolling the calls down. And, you know, this is a powerful breakout on no news. Um, you know, I'm wrong. Um, and so sooner or later, you know, it's good money after bad here. But this is kind of how I was trading Tesla over the last year. I'd get kind of too sized up. And normally I was doing it at a time where it was about to turn one way or another. But, you know, if you do that without defining your risk and without any sort of discipline, um, you're just going to get blown out. I tend to do this about once a quarter in a name. And, and Tesla was mine last quarter. It ended up working out 
pretty well. NVIDIA is working out very poorly right now, but I'm going to stick with it here. And th listen, this is not a great, that's not tra great trading acumen. And sooner or later, you know, you just got to have to pull the plug here. Uh, let's see how this stock closes today. And if it were to kind of come off of its highs, maybe give back half of it and follow through to the downside tomorrow, then I might lean into it. Otherwise, I'm going to have to look to cut my losses very soon. Seven months ago, you couldn't give the stock away with a bowl of soup when it was trading, I think, 108. It was collectively hated. Uh, if you go back and just listen to some of the pundits, now it's one of these things where it's never going down again. So this pendulum had swung one way, and it's clearly swung the other. And at 22 and a half times or something, revenues, I don't know. I mean, it, that, well, here, that's, that sounds very 1999 to me. Here's a number for you, Guy. So on March 29th of 2022, the stock traded 289.46. Okay. So that's the level. Um, and it had a big rally. You know, it, it sold off really hard from like 345 down to at early March about 206. And then it rallied from 206 to 289.46. So the stock right here is at 288 and a half. My hope is that you see a little memory there of people at that level. Maybe it's a technical level. It kisses that, and then it kind of sells off here because I just don't see any real good reason fundamentally, especially most of these major companies have reported that are customers of it. I just don't know why you'd be piling into this thing right here. It's interesting you mentioned, we'll end on this, um, Six Pence, None the Richer. That's a band. Their song, Kiss Me, which you might remember, but that song has been reinvigorated, or should I say repurposed by the National Hockey League as they play ads uh, for the quest to win the Stanley Cup. So for you sixpence, none the richer Lee Nash fans out there, I say of giant Mazel Tov. I say adieu to all of you for today. We ran, oh, Dan, it's 141. We ran late. As yeah. I mentioned, Dan and I will be in Brooklyn, New York tonight for a comedy night. And I got to tell you something. It's going to be pretty cool. Uh, this guy, Mike Berbliglia, uh, the, the great Jim Gaffigan's going to be there. Uh, John Mulaney for you Saturday Night I mean, negative. it's just a laundry list of great comics. They all have a certain thing in common, Dan. What is that? They're all Georgetown Hoya alumni, which is absolutely amazing. It's amazeballs, as you say. Yeah. And this has been amazeballs. I always, always want to thank our audience. Seriously, we appreciate all the comments. Uh, and we try, to, we try to address as many as we can. want to thank Amanda, Jacob, and Stephen, Back behind the glass, just kicking ass and taking names. Uh, I want to thank FactSet, our sponsor today, Financial Data and Analytics, powered by tomorrow. We will be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern time, where we're going to look at the market through the lens of futures, Dan, Nathan. All right, guys, let's go no, game number seven. What do they say? What do they say in the garden there? Let's F and go. Let's well, I'm not going to say. Listen, oh. again, since they're not playing in the garden, we're not going to have the opportunity to hear it. But there will be Ranger fans in attendance tonight at The Rock. Um, just listen, folks. Be dignified, okay? Win, yeah. lose, draw, it doesn't matter. Well, they're not going to draw, but you understand what I'm saying. I mean, this is what we – this is why we watch 82 regular season games to get to nights like tonight. You probably watched 72 of them, to be very honest with you. I got to tell you. All right. Good luck to the Rangers tonight. We'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks so much.